Welcome to Lo-Fi Watsonary. The Luke 7 episode, your podcast for the religiously burned out and the spiritually curious. If you're curious about the Bible, let's read it together. It's going to be fun, you guys. A couple housekeeping things, first of all. Um, hey, it's Kevin. How's it going? How are you? I'm going to slow down just a little bit. Um, doing the podcast has been so much fun. We're into our um, our second or third month now, and uh, it's been great. I've been getting a lot of positive uh, comments and people have been sharing the the podcast online, things like that. It, it warms my heart, and uh, I'm glad that a lot of you have said that you're enjoying the content and that you're getting a lot out of it. That that's what I'm doing this for. Uh, I, I want to share what I love about the Bible with others, and it's it's cool to see people connecting with that. Um, it's awesome. Couple things, please help us out. Um, I always say this at the end of the podcast. I'm going to say it at the beginning this time, uh, just so that I make it clear that I could really use your help. One of the things that I'm going to be pressing into over the next few weeks is just I would like to get some help by ha- asking you to rate and review the podcast with whatever source that you listen to it on. So if you listen to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, if you could go into those stores and give us a star rating, um, hopefully a high one, but I'm not going to tell you. And uh, <laughs> and then also write a review. It could just be a couple sentences long or one sentence long or whatever, but writing those reviews helps us out a lot. They won't, they, we are still at the point where we don't have enough reviews up for them to even share the reviews and enough ratings up for them to have enough for what they consider an average to put up an average review or, or rating. And we're going to be, we have some ideas of ways to start promoting and sharing the podcast a little bit deeper to folks who maybe I don't know personally. (laughs) And to do that, it would help us out a lot if people who had no idea who we were and what we were doing, if when they went there, they were like, oh, there's, uh, there are people that listen to it because there's ratings or interviews on there. So please, if you have a couple minutes, go rate and review the podcast. Uh, second housekeeping thing, Rob Bell. I'm coming for you, Rob Bell. Um, <laughs> Rob Bell put out a book last week uh, that's about the Bible, and I'm excited to get into it. I have, I have my copy, but if you read the description, it sounds an awful lot like what we do on Lo-Fi Lectionary. So he stole from me once, and then again, I, a couple weeks ago, uh, gave a shout-out to a friend of mine, uh, John Chafee, who uh, is a good friend, who has an amazing podcast that I mentioned before called Ambushed, and I gave him a shout-out on my podcast this week. On his podcast, Rob Bell gives a shout-out to none other than John Chafee for going to his Brooklyn, New York show. Rob Bell, you just... Oh, man. Look out for the little guy, Rob Bell. That's all I've got to say. I love you. All right. Uh, here we go. All right. Um, we are going to kick things off. We are going to do our Luke in two minutes. I got to get my stopwatch out and then uh, we'll get cracking. Let's do this, you guys. And yeah, we're going to do Luke in two minutes. Um, I'm going to do it just a little bit differently than I've done it before. This time, I'm going to tell the story so far in two minutes, hopefully, but kind of focusing on the idea of Jesus and Luke being presented as like a new king. So I'm going to focus on that theme. So here we go. <laughs> On your mark. Get set. Go! Okay, so Luke kicks off at the very beginning with a a prophecy. Uh, Jesus is going to be our main character. 
and he's going to be a king, but before that, people talk about him before he's even there. So a king is promised to be coming, uh, and it's said that there's other people that are going to be preparing a way for him, but there's going to be a twist when the angel appears to Mary and talks about the king that she's going to give birth to. It's not just an earthly king, it's a king who's the son of God. It's going to be the, the spirit of God plus her making a kid, um, and he's not just going to be just a regular anointed person. It's going to be kind of God himself coming into the world. So it's going to be um, an emp- like a king, like an emperor, because emperors at the time called themselves the sons of God, but it's going to be a different kind. It's going to be a son of God, but very different. And, and Mary says, great, this is, good. This is uh, God. You're going to lift up the low and bring down the powerful. So it sets out a theme. And the emperor is not, the real emperor, um, the Roman emperor is not even really an actor in the story. He does one little thing to make people move around. He's like just a little footnote. But Jesus, this one who's a different God, is born in a manger and attended by shepherds. He's going to be a light to all the Gentiles. He's going to be responsible for the rising and falling of many in Israel and the inner thoughts of all are going to be revealed. So there's going to be some opposition to him, even though he's king. John the Baptist comes and prepares the way and says, hey, everyone, you need to start repenting because there's going to be fire and it's going to burn the chaff and the bad fruit. And then Jesus has a coronation ceremony when he gets baptized. He's baptized with water and the spirit. God himself anoints him by saying, this is my son and my beloved and whom I will please. Then Jesus experiences these temptations where we realize he's not the same kind of king that we normally get. He actually refuses to take power over people. He's not self-serving. He doesn't want the worship of others. And he's not going to worship others. He's going to be faithful and a good king, which Israel never has before. Um, then he gives his thesis. He says, I'm here to be king to bring good news to the poor and let the oppressed go free and declare the year to the Lord's favor. So very different kind of king. Then he goes around healing people, touching lepers, forgiving sins, bringing disciples out of suspicious characters, and bringing favor to the needy. So he's going to be a very, 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 very different kind of king. A king who's interested in helping out the least of these. It's going to be interesting, even though he doesn't use that language. Ah, oh, there, I'm out of time. Ah, oh, bummer. Well, let's go ahead and jump right into the story. Okay, so here we go into Luke 7. But on the corner, the jury's sleepless. We found your weakness, and it's right outside your door. Now here we go into Luke 7. So uh, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he had heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him. He loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. So here, uh, just this quick little story. Um, We are now moving again from the block of teaching that we saw in Luke 6 to more narrative uh, passage uh, continuing on in the story. And whenever Luke transitions from teaching to narrative or narrative to teaching... He puts stories and teaching next to each other. He moves the events of the story around to kind of connect them by theme. So as we watch him, Jesus, go from teaching something to going to narrative, if there's anything that we thought was left in question in the teaching or that was confusing or challenging, we better watch in the narrative to see how Jesus is going to interpret the teaching with his actions. So uh, Luke intentionally puts stories right after the teaching that kind of illustrate a lot of the things that Jesus does just taught. So we're going to pay real close attention to these narrative passages and connect them to the teaching right before us. Um, so here, um, just to introduce this first little narrative passage, there is a centurion. A centurion was a member of the Roman army, which means he's a leader of the occupying force in Israel. So he would have not been well loved by the people of Israel. Um, he's basically a representative who maybe um, would be in charge of doing some really uh, awful things to the people of, of Israel at the time. Normally, um, he was a leader of a century, which was a group of about 60 to 70 soldiers. Um it should be a hundred, but in practice, usually it's about 60 to 80. I've seen, 
Um, and a uh, little bit of info, um, centurions uh, would have had to be ready to move around at a moment's notice as they were needed, wherever they were needed in the army. Um, so um, one source I read said that they were probably then not married. They don't have a lot of records of centurions being married and having kind of, quote-unquote, traditional families. But they would have households that would include slaves, servants, workers, um, people in their staff that they would move around with. So we learned that there, this person does indeed have a slave um, and one whom they are very close to, um, that they value highly, um, who's ill and close to death. So it could be that this uh, slave, even though they're a slave, was kind of a member of their household, very, very family-like, could have had a very, very close relationship to the centurion. Um, so we learned a couple things. Um, since the centurion is a Gentile, it would have been uh, against kind of the law or at least the strong customs of the time for a Jewish person to enter into their home. But that is just what this centurion asks for. He says, please come to my home and so that way they can heal my slave. So to even ask that of, uh, of a Jewish person, especially of a respected Jewish teacher at the time, would have been an offensive request. Like people would have been like scandalized that he would even ask. But here we learn that the people aren't scandalized by for it. He's actually beloved by the Jewish community. They say that he loves our people. He, they're like, he's, he's a good one. He's one of the good ones. Um, and he built our synagogue for us. So this person could be a God-fearer. He could kind of adhere, possibly, to the Jewish religion a little bit. Or he could just be um, like an extraordinarily generous, nice person who's who's willing to uh, give them support for a religion he has no interest in. And this is not normal. It's not normal for the Roman authorities to support the local religion of culture at the time. In fact, it was usually the other way around. As they conquered areas, they're like, no, you need to be Greek now. You need to learn our language. It was the process of Hellenization. Um, but here, this person is saying, no, you can keep your thing. And in fact, I'm going to support it for you, which is really interesting. So the elders come to Jesus and say, yeah, it's okay for you to go to their home. He's worthy. He loves our people. So here in this first little tiny little um, beginning of the passage, we we maybe see an illustration that Luke is giving us of the enemy love that Jesus has just told people this is going to be the way that we're going to live. We're going to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and give to those who ask. And who's doing it mostly here in the story? A centurion, the Roman, the person you don't expect. Um, because there's great generosity coming on on his behalf. So that's that's interesting. You know, he's giving expecting nothing in return. Like he's just building synagogues for people. Isn't that fascinating? Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. As Jesus went with them, but when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, "Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed." For I am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. So this is the, the, the last half of this little story. So that's a couple things to point out. So the centurion addresses Jesus as Lord, as curie. Um, so again, this could be Lord like master, teacher, respected person. It could be Lord as like, I'm recognizing you as like a, as a, a divinely touched or divine in nature person. So that's kind of interesting. And then the, the, the leaders that came to Jesus said, he is worthy of having you do this. But here the centurion is saying, I am not worthy. So just like in those stories we read of, 
of all those healings in a row where um, the people that did well with Jesus are the people who were on the ground who came and bowed down before Jesus. The centurion is on the ground. Like he says the same thing that that Peter says, I'm not worthy, get away from me. Um, So that's kind of interesting. So there's almost like a posture of repentance by uh, the centurion. And certainly we see uh, a little bit of the theme that we set up in the teaching in the last chapter of the speck in the log. Like the centurion isn't like, hey, we occupied you guys and we're here to win and you do what I say. It's like, no, you're the Lord. I'm not worthy you have authority in this world. Please help me. Um, so instead of focusing on the log of the people that he's there to rule over, he's kind of talk, pointing out the speck in his own eye. Interesting, interesting, interesting. The first person who's really getting Jesus' teaching right, who is it? A Roman centurion. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, I love Luke. Um, and here Jesus is amazed. Other people have been amazed when Jesus does something. And when people are amazed, that means they're on the right track. Like they're recognizing the good thing that Jesus is doing in the world. And here Jesus is amazed. Like, I mean, if you're tracking along with Luke, Luke's telling the story where God here, like walking around, the son of God is amazed at something. And it's the faith of a Roman army leader. Um, so the centurion of all people is the one who's getting it right. He's generous. He's loving his enemies. He's, he's avoiding judgment. He's taking a posture of repentance. I am not worthy. And, um, so you could say that in this moment, it's fulfilling Jesus's thesis statement from his very first teaching moment. He's saying others and outsiders are going to get what I'm doing in a way that some of you who are closest are not. Um, And then just a quick point out at the end of the story, it introduces this word faith for not in Israel. Have I found such faith? Faith is going to be a key word for this series of stories that we're going into and for the next series of teachings. Um, Faith is just, it just means trust, to trust something. So Jesus is saying, not in Israel have I found such trust. Like the centurion trusts that he can do it and and heals his servant even from far away. So lots of trust going on. And we're going to see how that plays out as we go forward. Okay, so let's go ahead and continue on in the story. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. So real quick break, um, just to explain some of the process that's going on. The death of an only son in the family would be considered extremely tragic because your fa- not only because your family line couldn't go on, but since this woman is also a widow, which means that her husband is dead, it's extremely tragic because now this widow has no one to support her and she's a woman alone in an ancient culture where women don't have a lot of mobility, a lot of rights, a lot of privileges, a lot of protections. Um, so she will be dependent on public charity for the rest of her life. It's going to be very bad. Um, and this is dependent on public charity for the rest of her life in a community where most people are in poverty. So it's not like there's a lot of resources and, uh, there's not a social safety net. Um, this, this is really bad. Like this woman's life is destroyed. Um, not only just personally and familially because she's lost her son, but um, just she's, she's in absolute practical crisis right now. Um, and there's a funeral procession. So they would proceed from the town, through the town, out through the gates to, the, to where they buried people. Um, the mother would travel in front of this procession. So there's kind of like a little mini parade going on, and she would have to lead it. And there would be any, any friends, family, um, anyone around them 
um, mourning, mourning was a big part of their culture. Like mourning was a task that you were given. In fact, they would often hire professional mourners to join the procession um, in order to kind of respect the dead and be part of the moment. So you have to imagine all this thing going by, weeping, wailing. Um, and the custom was that if you saw a funeral procession go by, you joined it. So you dropped what you were doing and you followed it and joined in the mourning. Um, there's also a custom that says you never interrupt a funeral procession. Even if you don't join it, you don't interrupt it. Um, and there's also a custom uh, that says that touching a corpse or touching the beer or touching even the mat the person was being carried out on uh, made you ceremonially unclean for a week. Um, and it would be uh, corpse uncleanliness, which is just a fun word and a great band name, corpse, corpse uncleanliness, um, which is considered the quote-unquote severest form of ritual impurity in ancient Judaism. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Let's continue on in the story. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. The word about him spread throughout Judea and all of the surrounding country. So you're not supposed to interrupt a funeral procession and you're not supposed to touch the corpse or the beer. And Jesus breaks all of these customs. In fact, he doesn't join the procession. He sends it backwards. So um, there's a parade. It's coming at Jesus. He does one thing and kind of sends it right back around. Go back home. <laughs> so it's kind of neat. He meets the mother first because remember she would have been at the front and he he has compassion on her. So again, if, if this is God walking around, God just has compassion for people who are, have lost loved ones or who are in extreme economic, uh, vulnerability. So, uh, he sends everything around. He touches the beer, which gives him corpse and cleanliness that would have made him ritually impure for a week, but he doesn't seem to care. He's not afraid of contamination. In fact, his influence and effect when he touches things that are considered unclean, it always goes the other way. It always becomes something that helps and heals and brings wholeness to people who are unclean or dead. It's just interesting. So here we have Jesus kind of living out the blessed are those who are weeping blessing that he gave before. Um, because here's a mother weeping and he sends the parade the other way. He's bringing favor. And the word, it says here as a little note, the word about him spread throughout Judea. We at this point in the story have to wonder, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it seems like it should be a good thing. But um in the last block of teaching, Jesus also gave a woe, you know, a woe to you and people speak well of you. So the word is spreading out and this could either lead to something good or it could lead to something bad. We don't know if this is woe or a blessing. It's like a little foreshadowing that Luke is dropping in there. Let's continue on and see what happens next. The disciples of John. So here we go. John the Baptist from a few chapters ago. Here we go. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. And he answered them, 
Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So here we have a moment where John the Baptist, who was, who was just like Jesus, was his birth was kind of foretold and he was going to be special and stuff like that. And he even saw himself as taking on the work of kind of preparing the way and leading the way for the Messiah. Now Jesus, the Messiah, has shown up and has been going around acting and teaching and ministering and doing all these, all these, all these actions and healing people. And John has heard about it, and he's in jail. Remember, at this point, it had dropped, been dropped earlier that he'd be imprisoned. But he has his disciples, and he's heard the news about what Jesus is doing, and he isn't so sure about it. And so he sends two people like are, to ask, like, are you the Messiah? Like, because as the work of what Jesus is doing is being described to him, let's compare it to how John had described what he thought the work of the Messiah is going to be. This is back from chapter three. This is John speaking. I baptize with you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And elsewhere in that chapter, he also says that he, like the bad fruit is going to be burned in fire. Um... And then here's Jesus, and the description of what Jesus is actually doing is that the word is spreading throughout the surrounding country that Jesus is curing people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and giving sight to the blind. Like, it's it's all good work, and he's bringing, you know, the Holy Spirit, as Paul, as John thought, and he has power, as John thought, but it's a little bit different, and there's not a lot of winnowing fork in what Jesus is doing, necessarily. And there's not a lot of fire in what Jesus is doing, at least so far. And so you have to wonder, is John here at this moment being like, oh, I don't know. Like, I was there when I baptized you, and I thought that you were the one, but this this is different than I thought. Like, so tell me straight up, are, are you the one, or are we to wait for another? And here's how, and then Jesus describes his work, you know, go and tell John what you've heard. The, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, brine received sight, death here, being dead being raised, and poor getting good news. And Jesus is like, well, this is the work. Like, that's the evidence that I'm the Messiah. Um, and blessed are you if you would not be offended by that. If you are waiting for fire and for power, but this is what I'm doing, hopefully you'll do well if you don't take a, if you're not offended. Like, instead be amazed, you know. So that's kind of interesting. Um, let's continue on in the story. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to look at? Remember, because John was teaching in the wilderness. A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written... See, I see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then Luke gives us this as an aside comment. 
And all the people who heard this, including the tax collectors, acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But by refusing to be baptized by John, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. So here, um, you know, John's disciples go back to John and Jesus takes it as a moment to really vindicate John's work. So Jesus basically stands up and says, yeah, he was a prophet and he was ready and he prepared the way before me. And he was a true prophet because not a lot of you guys have spoken well of him. He was kind of a weird guy out in the wilderness. He wasn't living in luxury and putting on fine clothing and living in a powerful position in a royal palace. Um, and that could, should show you guys that he was a true prophet and he was on board. Um, and he's been imprisoned, but that should be confirmation that he was doing the right thing instead of an argument against him. Um, and so John and going out to the wilderness was, was calling for a new way. Like he was calling you out from the soft palaces out to the wilderness, which is, which is imagery that comes from the book of Exodus about an Exodus, like a calling out, like taking a new way forward because God was going to use them for something new. Um, so John was calling for a new Exodus, um, that Jesus was going to come and kind of inaugurate. Um, so in a sense, John kind of embodied the baptism repentance, calling out, I am not worthiness, um, themes that, that we've seen also as in, in, in the Jesus's life and teachings that we've seen so far. So Jesus really vindicates John here. And then he points out, Luke then uses this as an opportunity to point out, yeah, that's why there is a problem with the Pharisees. Because even tax collectors and, and sinners and people went and, and repented and want to be part of this new way, like being called out to the wilderness with John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves by refusing to be a part of this movement. Um, and you can compare that to chapter three, because if you go back to chapter three, where John the Baptist is, is baptizing people and teaching, um, you see indeed at that scene, tax collectors and soldiers are the two people in particular who went out to be baptized. And here in this story, in this chapter, we've seen tax collectors and sinner, and soldiers, I mean, um, going out and, and, and being part of the work of Jesus. So it's like the tax collectors and commoners seem to know that they need to repent, that they're not worthy, that things need to change, that the way things are working isn't working for them and working for others. But these Pharisees and lawyers refuse to get baptized. It's like they're saying, we, we don't need to convert and repent, you know? And so therefore they don't get to be part of the work of preparing the way for the kingdom of God like John is. And as a result, Luke calls that, that they reject God's purpose for them. Like the Pharisees and, 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 and teachers of the law and the scribes, like their job was to be the leaders of people. If anyone should have acknowledged and been ready for what God was going to come and do, it should have been them. So there's some, there's an ironic quality to the story that the people who should have been the most ready, the people that should have been closest, the people that should have most readily identified what Jesus is ready to do in the world actually end up opposing him and end up on the outside of it. And the people who you thought were least likely to be on board with it are the people who jump on and are ready for it immediately. It's this, these stories about John and the people and how they re re reacted to John and therefore how they reacted to Jesus embody the blessings and the woes from the last chapter, you know, because the blessings are on the people who are weeping and crying and who are unworthy and who are poor and the woes go on the people who are laughing and who are full and who are in positions of power. So it's, it's, it's really interesting what's happening here in the story. Let's go ahead and continue on. Let me take a drink. 
To what then will I compare this people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. That's apparently my, my child, my child in the market voice. So here's what the kids say. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. <laughs> why, is, um, why, is, why is my voice for the kids? Um, um, blanking on his name, but the Twin Peaks guy. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. <laughs> so we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. For John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man had come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Nevertheless, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So Jesus caps off his little uh, teaching moment here um, with this with this with this great word picture uh, that he puts. He's like, he's like, you guys are like kids and there's kids in the market and they're trying to get a game started. And, and so some kids play the flute, but others, the other kids, they won't dance. They won't join the game. They won't join the fun, happy game, you know, when they're playing the flute. And then the kids, so the kids try and wail and weep. And they, so they're playing a wailing game, I guess. But the other kids won't join in that game either. Like they won't wail and weep. And so Jesus is here like, hey, John came and he had a winnowing fork and he was firing his con for repentance. And he wanted to, to upend society and, and go out and live in the wilderness. And you and you guys wouldn't join that game. Like you wouldn't play along. Like you didn't see it. You weren't ready. Um, and then I came and I've been playing the, the flute. We've been, we've been dancing and eating and, and drinking. And instead of joining in on that game, you've said, look, a glutton and a drunkard, which were, which were terms of offense. Like you would, those were charges you could bring on someone. You could charge someone in their society for being a glutton and a drunkard. And that would be a punishable offense. Um, so Jesus is like, ah, like you guys don't want to be happy or sad. You don't, you don't want harsh religion and you don't want happy religion. You don't want like... You don't want anything. You only want what you what you want, and that's why you're gonna miss out on the game altogether. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So John is called for a kind of harsh and strict devotion, and you needed to repent, but you wouldn't repent. Uh, and I've come celebrating the favor of God being released to everybody. And you don't want that either. Like you've just been upset over who gets the favor. So the you Pharisees, teachers, law, scribes, lawyers, these terms that kind of get thrown around for the same kind of group of people who are opposing Jesus. It's like, you're, you're just critical of everything and, and you're going to miss out. Let's continue on in the story and see how this plays out. Cause now we're going to get see it illustrated further. So, um, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. Hey, a good, a good Pharisee. Maybe he's on board. Let's see. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table and a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. So it's a banquet scene. Um, at a Pharisee's house. Um, so if, if he's a, if he's a well-off Pharisee, he would have a big room in his house where you could host these kind of events for the community. And, uh, banquets would be common scenes in their kind of literature and in their culture 
where especially if you invited a teacher over, they would become scenes for moral and religious instruction. So if you had a teacher over, you would eat and be happy and kind of hang out, and then everyone would kind of be looking and waiting for when the teaching part is going to happen. Um, so this Pharisee hears that this, you know, Jesus is in town. He's a traveling teacher. And we don't really, it's hard to kind of judge what this Pharisee feels about Jesus at this moment. Because a lot of the Pharisees have been in opposition to him. But here this one is like, yeah, come over to my house. So it could be that this Jesus recognizes something good about Jesus and wants to be part of it. Or it could be that this Pharisee is kind of looking for honor. Like, hey, the people really like this guy. He should come over to my house. And so this Pharisee kind of asks him over. And is there for inviting this person to come over and give moral religious instruction at their house? Like, oh, he'll come over and he'll teach us, he'll teach people some lessons, you know? Um, the layout of the dining room, um, it, it would be a, a room where there would be a, a couple, um, possibly some couches, some cushions, but also tables that were usually low to the ground. And the way people would sit down and eat at these moments, at this place in history, they would recline on their side. I'm, I'm doing it now as if you can see me, um, like doing the arm shelf. <laughs> if you remember from, uh, from, uh, awkward family photos, the arm shelf, um, kind of leaning over on one side. So that way you had one hand free to kind of grab food from the table or pass food to people next to you. Um, you would be packed in pretty close. So someone else would be reclining to the side kind of in front of you because you all would kind of lean diagonally towards the table with your feet pointing away from the table because your feet were dirty. So you didn't want them near anyone else's faces and your faces would all be leaning in t- inclined towards the table. So we get other scenes and other gospels where, um, where Jesus can lean back on someone's chest. Like you were packed in that close. Um, and other people lean back to talk to him. Like they have to turn their heads. So you have to imagine a bunch of people kind of, kind of diagonally, um, pointing in towards a common table. Um, and they all have one hand to kind of help serve each other food. Um, and they're really packed and usually pretty close. And so this woman comes around the outside of the tables and she's not sitting at the meal. She's on the outside where everyone's feet are tucked away from the, from the food, away from the tables, away from the instruction. Um, and, uh, and she comes and she is kind of hanging around the outside and she starts, um, washing Jesus's feet, um, with her tears and drying them with her hair and then anointing them with the ointment, this perfume that she has in this alabaster jar. Alabaster was a, a popular jar of choice for ointments and perfumes. Um, so she gets into the party, which is kind of a surprise a little bit, but, um, if you were a very devout Jewish person, you would allow the poor to enter your banquet when you threw one. Cause that was kind of part of their law, part of their custom, but it was kind of an uh, a spoken or unspoken rule that if you're not um, an honored guest, <clears throat> quote unquote, that you would be expected to stay away from the couches, away from the other honored guests, away from the food, kind of away from everyone. You could go and kind of eat from what was left over and stuff like that, and you could hang out. Um, so it wasn't like they were excluding you, but you were kind of excluded. <laughs> um, and this woman in particular, it says that she was a, who was a sinner. So whatever... Whatever her sins are, they're they're public. Um, it's something that is obvious for people. She's kind of known in the community for being a sinner. Um, we get some clues as to what that might be, but this is all kind of conjecture. If she's carrying an alabaster jar of perfume, if she has it at home, uh, perfume was a common tool of the trade amongst people who were in prostitution. Um, so the fact that she has it could indicate that. 
Um, also, um, a couple other clues. Her head is uncovered because she's washing Jesus's feet with her hair. Um, which if you were an adult woman, um, you would keep your head covered. You would keep your hair covered. The fact that she doesn't, it would have, she would have been therefore seen in her community as promiscuous. Um, so that could also give us a clue that maybe she was a prostitute. We're not exactly sure. And the, the story doesn't say it right out. So we, so I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but if she's not a prostitute, it's, it's at least we have to acknowledge the story to say that she's, she's known for being a sinner and her head is uncovered. Um, so her presence even at this party would be offensive to, um, devout religious folks who would be at this dinner. Um, but here she is drying, uh, washing the, the feet of Jesus, um, and drying her, his feet with her hair, which is, is a, an extreme act of humility and crying and kissing his feet. So she's known as a sinner, but she's in a posture again, she's on the ground cleaning his feet, um, in a posture of repentance. So that's really interesting. Let's see what happens next. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus over saw this, the Pharisee said to himself, as people, <laughs> as these kind of people do, they just talk out loud, but only to themselves. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. Okay, so here's the teaching. Let's see. They've all been expecting this. Let's see what happens. A certain creditor had two debtors. So Jesus starts to tell a story. A certain creditor had two debtors. One who owed 500 denarii, which is their unit of money, 500 denarii, and the other who owed 50. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? So again, the setup of the story is that debts are being canceled. This is the, from the year of Jubilee. So Jesus' first sermon where he says the year of the Lord's favor, it's the year when all debts would be canceled. So the plot of this story that Jesus is telling is that these debts went, so, went for a long time without being paid, but then the time for cancellation of debts happened. And one owed 500 and one owed 50. And Jesus asked the question, which of them will love him more? Simon, the Pharisee, answered, I suppose the one for whom he had canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which for many have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one for whom little is forgiven, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this Pharisee is critical of Jesus and he mumbles. He's a grumbler. He says to himself like out loud, like so people could hear, you know, um, that Jesus is obviously not a real prophet because he would know who this woman is. If he was a real prophet, he would know things about people. It would be obvious to him that she's a sinner. And if he's a real prophet and he knows that she's a sinner, he wouldn't allow her to touch him to be close. 
Um, so he's sitting around grumbling, being critical of Jesus. So these crowds have been like, hey, he's a prophet. You know, a prophet has come among us, you know. And this Pharisee is testing Jesus out. Ugh, uh, he's, he's not a real prophet, you know. Then Jesus starts the moral teaching. And it's, it's, it's a great ironic twist because this Pharisee who invited a respected teacher over in the hopes that they, he might be host to some great teaching, he wanted to be host, but now he's the object lesson. <laughs> ah, I love Jesus. He's so great. Um, so Jesus tells a story about two creditor, uh, a creditor with two debtors and the one, you know, the, one owes a lot and one owes a little. Um, and yeah, like they both get forgiven. And so which one's going to love him more? Yeah, probably the one that, that owed more is going to be happier, is going to be more appreciative, stuff like that. Um, and then Jesus uses this as a moment to criticize the Pharisee. Like, um, when you invited people over to your house, you would offer them, you know, uh, water to wash, you know, their hands and wash their feet and to get clean and ready for dinner. Um, greeting someone with a kiss when they entered your home was a common custom. Um, and then if you wanted to go above and beyond, if you really wanted to honor your guests, you would have oil ready to anoint their heads, you know, or their feet, um, to put it in your hair usually um, was a common practice um, to rub some oil in your hair to kind of refresh yourself and feel good and uh, ready for, you know, the event. And Jesus tells this guy like, Hey, when I came over, you, you wanted me to be the guest at your house, but you, you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has her own tears, like her poor meager gift. She had no water to carry, but she gave of the water of her body basically. Um, and then she, she dried them with her hair. You know, you didn't give me a kiss when I entered, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't give me any oil, but she brought what little oil that she had from home and has anointed me. Uh, and so Jesus is kind of laying into this guy a little bit, you know, but he didn't ask for it. Like the, he, he, you know, he didn't, he, this didn't seem to be Jesus' plan from the get go, but Hey, if the, if the Pharisee is going to speak up and start to, to criticize Jesus and criticize the person who's doing it right. It's like Jesus speaks up for this, for her and for himself. Um, so he tells this little story, um, you know, and Luke is here, has a moment where he's telling us a story where God is walking around on the earth. Um, and the religious leaders don't see that it's God. Like he did, they don't even recognize him as a prophet, but the tax collectors, the sinners, you know, and this woman who is possibly a prostitute does like they all quickly and readily identify who Jesus is and all the people who should have been closest and should have clued into it most quickly don't. Um, and then, so Jesus pronounces that her sins are forgiven and she hasn't even, you know, come to confess it. Like she said nothing so far. Um, but Jesus goes ahead and just pronounces it. Your sins are forgiven. Like he's always so ready to forgive people. It's really interesting. And, and it causes a commotion. Who is this even to forgive sins? Like, again, the crowd has a problem identifying who Jesus is. But Jesus doesn't care. He goes ahead and pronounces forgiveness. And he doesn't require any kind of a... A sacrifice. Um, he doesn't tell her that she needs to go to the temple and give an offering. Um, he doesn't tell her that she needs to go make some sort of restitution for her sins. He's just like, yeah, your, your sins are forgiven. Go. Your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> like he just pronounces it over her. Um, 
And this whole story, this little story at the end, kind of illustrates a lot that's been going on in this whole chapter, and then even in the chapter before it. It's a lot of the teaching that we've gotten, a lot of the stories kind of become encapsulated by this one little story. Because we have this Pharisee that needs to change. Like, he's, he's, he's not a good host. He's not offering help to people. He's not the one who's out there um, helping people who are in need. He's not the one getting sinners to find ways to change and to... Um, and to experience God's favor. And so there's just woe all over this guy. And so Jesus tells this little story about the creditor and the two debtors. Um, This Pharisee doesn't even see that he owes debt, it seems like, or even maybe even a little bit. And so therefore he loves little Jesus says, but, but this woman loves deeply. Like this woman comes and, and it gets down on the ground, like, like good characters do in, in Luke. She seems to understand, you know, her debt, her need. And so therefore her faith has saved her and she receives forgiveness and salvation and goodness and peace. Um, whereas Jesus leaves this teaching where he leaves the criticism hanging over this person. He leaves, he leaves the Pharisee without some peace. Um, which is really interesting. <clears throat> so again, we get one story where there's two people and the person on the bottom on the outside, who's not even really directly invited to this party is ready to be baptized, to be changed, to, to be part of the new way that Jesus is, is leading people on. And the Pharisee's not ready. Uh, and in fact, the Pharisee gives these comments about if he knows who this woman is a sinner, then they wouldn't even, you know, they wouldn't come close and Jesus wouldn't let her, nearby like in the, from the Pharisees point of view everyone else needs to change not me <laughs> and so the, again the story embodies that speck that log teaching of just like this guy is so obsessed with the specks in everyone else's eyes that he he doesn't even see the giant log sticking out of his face <laughs> and therefore Jesus's uh res- resolution is, is that you you love little um, whereas this person loves greatly. And Jesus has been teaching, you need to love so greatly that you can even be ready to love your enemies. And this guy is just so far off. And that's the last, that's the last part of the, of the text. So let's go ahead and jump into our, uh, our lo-fi questions. Okay. So question number one, um, oh, oh my gosh, excuse me. Question number one, what is God like in Luke seven? It, the first thing that jumps out to me as you, as I we read the story is that God is amazed. Like, isn't that fascinating? Like, we seem to have this idea of God being um, an immovable object, an unchangeable object, an unaffected object. And I say object intentionally because it's almost like God isn't a person. God's like a like a life force. Like, God is, uh, you know, untouchable, immovable, doesn't really... F- like, we talk about God maybe having feelings, but not really. You know what I mean? But here, Jesus is surprised. He's amazed. Which is just really interesting. And I just want to take note of that. In the story of Luke, God is amazed. And not amazed at at, at what you would expect. He's amazed at the faith of a leader of the Roman army. (laughs) Oh, man. There's there's irony just dripping all over um, this story. Um, uh, What else is God like? God is willing to cross cultural lines. He's, He's willing to enter the centurion's house. He's willing to stop a funeral procession. He's willing to touch the the the, the beer that the 
the body, the dead body of a, decom- of a decomposing dead person. Um, he's willing to, to get corpse uncleanliness on himself, if need be, to help people and show compassion. He was willing to go into a Gentile's house, which is, again, like, against the law. Like, Jesus doesn't, just doesn't seem to care. <laughs> um, Jesus don't care. <laughs> he's not a honey badger. Um, and he's willing to cross, uh, you know, religious lines with folks and cultural lines and uncleanliness lines and purity lines and stuff like that. He's, he's willing to break all the rules if it means that he can show compassion on people who are in need. Um, again, also, what is God like? Um, we, let's, let's look at the, the Jesus versus John kind of passages again. You know, John thought and spoke of the Messiah as coming and, and judging and separating the good from the bad and, and bringing some consequences into the world, you know, those fire images and stuff like that. And Jesus does seem to be separating the good from the bad and that, you know, their inner thoughts are getting revealed. Um, but it's got love and favor all over it. Like Jesus doesn't refuse the invitation of the Pharisee man, like when he invites him over to his house. And he doesn't even like jump into judging and criticizing this guy and, until he does something that kind of warrants Jesus's criticism. Um, Jesus just seems to be interested in going about the world and not separating the wheat from the chaff to burn the chaff, but separating it out in order to be compassionate, in order to help, in order to heal, to bring good news to the poor. Um, so it's, it's, it's not judgment so much as kind of a way to bring more goodness into the world. Like, I, I really think that Jesus, like in accepting the invitation of the Pharisee, is really trying to get the Pharisee on board. He wants everyone involved. Um, which is really, really interesting. Um, whereas John was kind of like, who told you to come? You brood of vipers, you know? Um, Jesus is like, great, you're having me over. Oh, but you know, we got to talk about this, (laughs) you know? Um, it's, it's echoing the teaching where Jesus says, um, be merciful as your father in heaven is merciful. Um, the primary quality that Jesus thinks we need to emulate about God is in his holiness, but about his mercy. And Jesus is, is God walking around just trying to be as merciful as possible to everybody. He's just ready to forgive all the time. Um, and, and like this, when he engages the mother who's lost her son, God is there to bring life, not bring death, which is that's that's what God is like, and that's very different than some images of God we get um, maybe in our own selves, maybe from the way that we've observed in the world what we think God must be like. Maybe if you've even read other other parts of the Bible, um, God might not always look like someone who's interested in bringing life into the world, not death. Um, you know, and is interested in, in being primarily merciful, um, you know, and I, I won't speak about, you know, really other religions or other spiritualities, but sometimes I encounter folks um, from all kind of different walks of cultures in life who um, carry with them an image of God who's very different than God as we see God in Luke 7, at least. A God who's amazed and surprised and pleasantly surprised and celebrates that and is willing to break all the lines possible to go and show compassion and mercy on people. Really interesting guy, this Jesus. Um, question number two, what are people like? Like, how are the people characterized? Um, people in the story, they sometimes love. Like, we have this loving relationship between the Jewish leaders and the centurion in that town. Um, you know, so even enemy love. Like, they seem able to actually pull off being good. It's not that in every story, like the human people are always the ones who are wrong and Jesus walks around this God figure and is always right. Like sometimes people get it, you know, 
Isn't that cool? Like, it's possible. Like, people sometimes love and love well. Um, people sometimes, in Luke 7, they sometimes have faith. You know, Jesus points out the faith of the centurion, uh, the faith of the woman in the story at the end. You know, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Like, sometimes people are able to trust the goodness of God so well that they're willing to um, get close and willing to be part of what he's doing in the world and stuff like that. In both stories, faith saves people. Um, so sometimes people have good faith for the world or in the world. I mean, not in the world, not they have faith in the world, but within the world that we live in, sometimes people have faith, which is pretty cool. Um, number three, um, uh, sometimes in my notes, it says, sometimes people are ready to be baptized. Okay. There's no baptism that actually happens in the story. Although we talked to a Baptist, um, but baptism represented this kind of way of being like, okay, I want to, I want to clean myself out and be ready for something new. And if that involves me having to change some of my ways, I'm ready for it. That's like the process of repentance, being ready for what's coming next. And Jesus has certainly been going about doing a, a new thing, like leading people in a new way. You know, you've heard it said, but now I said, you know, the blessings and woes are, are, are different than what people expect, stuff like that. Um, and sometimes people are really ready for that. You know, um, this woman sinner, um, this centurion, um, the, the the people who celebrate when Jesus brings the, the guy back to life. Um, in Luke 7, some people are really ready for that. You know, John even seems kind of ready for it. It's just not really what he expected. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, and let's acknowledge that the, the people who have faith, the people who love each other well, the people who are kind of ready for good change in, in the story in Luke seven are all people who start with humility. You know, the centurion, I'm not worthy to have you come. Um, uh, you know, the, even the Jewish leaders in that story, you know, this person is worthy and he's good. Like there, there, there's a little bit of humility there and that they're, they're not holding a grudge because he's a Roman person. They're willing to recognize what's good when they see it. Um, the woman comes before Jesus and, and cries and, 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 you know, weeps before him. Um, uh, the, the people who can acknowledge their need are the people who recognize the goodness of Jesus most quickly instead of standing back and being critical of what Jesus is doing in the world first. Um, so yeah, there's a, again, it's continuing the theme of the people who do well are the people who are kind of on the ground, um, which is really interesting. Um, but also we get these other characters in the story, you know, embodied by this Pharisee man at the end of the chapter who, so we have to kind of acknowledge sometimes people are obsessed with judging others. Like this Pharisee maybe even invites Jesus over for the purpose of sizing him up and seeing if he, if Jesus is going to be on board with what he wants in the world, you know, and, and, and what he believes. And in one moment, in one sentence, judges both Jesus and the woman. Um, and therefore he misses out and he loves a little. Sometimes people love, sometimes people have faith, sometimes people are ready for goodness. Sometimes people love little and miss out when God comes over to their house for dinner. My goodness. <laughs> Maybe you know people like that. Um, or maybe maybe I'm a person like that. Maybe we're all people like that. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good kitchen conversation. We'll get to that later. Um, so third lo-fi question. Why would Luke think that this story that he's heard and that he's researched is good to keep in this chapter to write down in his book to use very precious ink and parchment to write in? And then after he wrote it, why would people 
keep it in the story instead of editing it out at a certain point. And why would people tell these stories constantly over the last 2000 years? Um, why? Well, first of all, I, I think these stories do a good job of illustrating the block of teaching that we got in the last story. So Jesus kind of gives us some teaching and we have this kind of human tendency of being like, well, what does he mean? Even when sometimes those messages are straight out, love your enemies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Give to anyone who asks. Um, they're pretty straightforward teachings, but sometimes we're always like, well, what does that mean? You know? And so Luke gives us these stories and he's like, oh, these stories illustrate what Jesus is talking about here. So I'm going to put them right here. Um, and people will need them to illustrate what's doing. Um, so in case people are confused, let's show them what loving your enemies looks like. Let's show them what not judging looks like. Let's show them what the blessings and the woes that Jesus pronounces look like as they take place in the real world. Um, so I think that's why Luke would teach those stories. And I think that's why people would keep them around. Um, they'd be like, oh, you know what? Sometimes Jesus teaching is hard. And just so it's clear, we have these stories of him going around being so merciful, stuff like that. Um, I think people might keep these stories around because maybe they were surprised about how Jesus is interested in doing kind of cross-cultural work, um, with the Roman centurion, um, with other people in the story where Jesus is, is willing to break a lot of the customs and rules and, Maybe they keep these stories around because they want to remember one of two things. Maybe they want to remember that Jesus is a model for them as they go out into the world. That, hey, sometimes we're going to have to break cultural customs in order to show mercy and compassion and favor to others. Um, so again, uh, as Luke is being written, you have the the Christian f religion movement um, being very um, mission mission oriented, missionary, like they're they're going around evangelizing people, and as they go, like this story would help them remember. Oh, like we 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 will take faith wherever we can find it. There's no one who doesn't isn't worthy to to hear that God wants to have favor on them and to be part of what we're doing in the world. Um, um, but also maybe the people who have heard it. The centurion is kind of a model for them and that, um, okay, we weren't part of this people who have been part of this long tradition that Jesus comes from, like this Jewish tradition, this Jewish culture, but we are invited to, and maybe when we have faith, God is just as happy and amazed when we have it as when he was, when that centurion had it. So there's a place for me in this community, in this table, like I can still amaze God maybe when I have good faith, um, and love for others. Interesting. So maybe that's why they kept these stories around. Um, also it kind of, um, these stories again, kind of hammer home the nature of the work of the, uh, that God is up to in the world and the work that they believe. I mean, if they're very caring and telling these stories and they see a people that are in the movement of what Jesus started, it reminds them of what their nature of their work in the world is to be, to, to, to bring sight to blind, to, you know, help the lame walk, to help lepers get clean, you know, and be, be cured. I mean, if that was the work of Jesus, and if that's not only just his work, but if Jesus is like, this is the sign that I'm among you and that the, my work is continuing on. This is what it looks like. Um, then people who want to consider themselves Christians, like who want to consider themselves little Jesuses, they, they need to be doing the same work. Like their look, their work should look very similar. Um, if this is the sign that the Messiah is here, like, shouldn't it also look that way wherever they go? Maybe, you know, maybe that's why they keep these stories around. It's kind of a mission statement for them. Um, you know, like, a, like a modern CEO is they've had a vision and they've got a mission statement and this is what it looks like. It's, you know, the blind scene, the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the good news is being told to the poor. Um, so I think that's why they would, they would keep these stories around. 
It would also maybe just as on a personal spiritual level, they might keep these stories around because it reminds them of their own need um, to be repentant and to show gratitude for the work that God is doing in the world. Like there's a certain sense that they might read these stories and see themselves in it, that we are sometimes like the woman who is weeping because we've lost everything. Like, in, you know, we've lost our, our sons and we're hoping that God will be compassionate towards us. We are like the centurion who um, says, no, I'm not even worthy for you to come to my house, but please help me anyway. Um, we're like the woman who um, kind of is there weeping before Jesus, just so happy that he's there and is willing to have her close. Um, maybe, maybe the people hearing these stories see a bits of themselves in there and, and, and see those characters and say, that's who we should be modeling and emulating, not the spiteful, holy man at the end, the Pharisee who's critical and judgmental of others. Hopefully we want to be people who are also surprised and amazed and who celebrate the goodness of what Jesus is doing in the world. Um, you know, because, because, Two people in this story get saved, quote unquote, like their faith saves them. Like when people have faith, people are brought back to life in this story, like literally with the centurion slave and with the the, the son who died. And then Jesus pronounces salvation over the woman who's weeping at the end. Um, and if these people believe that they want and need to be saved, then they want to emulate those people. And the Pharisee doesn't doesn't get it. At least not yet, you know. Um, so these stories provide like kind of flesh and blood models for how people might think that they should be in the world. And so for 2,000 years, people have been telling these stories saying like, hey, you know what? You know who our role models are? Uh, okay, and, and again, we don't have this for sure, but a weeping prostitute is our role model. <laughs> Um, you know, and a centurion, you know, um, who doesn't even see himself as worthy of having Jesus close to him. That's our role model. Um, not the religious leader who knows all the intellectual stuff in the world, but who sits and is critical and judgmental. Interesting. I wonder what it would look like for a community if they decided to keep these stories around and let that be what shaped who they are and what they want to do in the world. Interesting stuff, you guys. That's the end of a lo-fi lectionary for this week. Um, this has been Luke 7. I hope you loved it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the lo-fi kitchen later this week and uh, hopefully hearing you uh, share with me about Luke 8 too. Um, if, you've, if you if you want to get in touch and uh, share, we'll put the little tag at the end with all of our contact info. But um, we have we have discussions that are trying to, to get going on Facebook. So if you're a Facebooker, um, come and find us on Facebook and join the discussion. I mean, I just told you what I see, how I think God and people are characterized in Luke 7, I would love to hear what you think. So jump on the jump on board. Let's talk. I'll see you uh I'll see you later this week. Hi everyone, I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review Subscribe and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Lectionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net. And that's lofi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofi kevin. 
with no dash again. So at Lo-Fi Kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming, and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.